Good morning to each of you. It's good to be together today. And uh, let me just rearrange the furniture, if you don't mind. I'd like to be able to see everybody. And uh, because preaching does have the dynamic of eye contact, and that's better. I don't think anybody can hide now. Okay, good. Uh, So uh, we continue our exposition in the book of Hebrews. If you would find your place there, we do preach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church. And we have been trekking through this wonderful epistle uh, to the Hebrews, and we find ourselves in chapter 10, and today's text will be verses 32 to 39. And after that strong warning section that we saw last time, a very strong warning section, it's followed up with whispers of encouragement today. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you, you might think of it like this. I remember when I played high school, and what are those things, Steve, when you're when you're, when you're training how to block the coaches, it's a skid, right? Sled, okay. So, you know, here we are, we're like pushing the coach, and he's just going around and blows that metal whistle, and it's so loud in your ears, right? Well, that's the way the warning section is, the author, to his hearers. It's loud. It should get our attention, right? But now you compare that loud whistle to the soothing calm piano, and that's what he goes into now with seeking to encourage us. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, um, but we do know a lot about him. We know that he has a pastor's heart for his people, that he loves his people so much that he'll, he'll give firm admonitions and encouragements and even warnings along the way, right? Um, one of the commentators, Kent Hughes, gives this illustration in, in parenting, right? You picture, you know, when our kids were little, say about five, and there's defiant behavior, willful disobedience, which needs to be addressed, and you sit them down, and you talk to them, and you say, you know, because you are rebelling against my authority and God's authority, I have the responsibility to discipline you. And so there's that discipline, and and, you know, little five-year-old Johnny, or we can say Calvin or Caleb, but, uh, you know, like... The, the lips start shaking and the, the, the tear, the blinking of the eyes and the tears start running down. And, and, and you know, maybe a, a few swats, um, you know, to administer that biblical discipline. And, and then, but then you contrast that to the sweetness afterwards where you're taking him into your arms and saying, it's going to be okay. I love you. Don't question my love for you. And, and, and that's kind of what the, the writer does here in, in that last section, 26 to 31. He delivered one of the most hardest chastening warning sections. Some would argue the hardest in the entire Bible. Certainly the hardest and most strong hitting out of the five warning sections in Hebrews in that section concluding it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But now figuratively in our text today, He's taken his congregation into his arms and encouraging them and and gives them much hope. He did the same thing back in chapter 6 after that warning section where he says that for in the case of those who once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and all of that and they fall away, it's impossible to renew them. And in verse 9 he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And so there's that tender back and forth warning, encouragement that we see on display. The the writer's focus really these next between that warning section and the last warning section is really one of perseverance. Will you persevere to the end in the Christian life? Whether that be five years, 50 years, or 60 or 70 years, will you persevere in the faith unto the end? And the use of the warnings in Hebrews propels us to take special care that we will persevere. But let me ask it this way. Will God cause you as a true child of God to persevere unto the end? And the answer is yes. So both are true. We are called to persevere unto the end. God will make sure that we persevere for truly in Christ. Well, let's read the text beginning in verse 32 to the end of the chapter. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. 
For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. And yet, for a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we ask that you would give us insight and understanding into this passage from this pastor's heart to the Hebrews. And Lord, as we see how that even applies to us in the 21st century in Southern California, Lord, would you visit us by your Spirit? Would you allow the words that come out of my mouth to be clear and clearly understood? Would you be pleased to encourage and strengthen each one here? And and even if there's somebody that doesn't know you, that you'd be kind to save them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw that paragraph back in verse 19 to 25, those encouragements, that salad bar, if I may say that again, let us, it's a hortatory subjunctive, it's an exhortation, the writer includes himself, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. And thirdly, let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good needs. That word consider means to apply mental effort, to think, how can I encourage my brother Steve? How can I encourage my sister back there? So those kinds of things is the idea. And then that warning section. And so actually, so verses 19 to 25 is the appropriate response to the truth that Christ is not only our great high priest, but he's the new covenant sacrifice that secures our salvation. The appropriate response is drawing near, holding fast, considering in that body life how to encourage. The inappropriate response is what we saw last time. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Startling language, right? Starting language. And, and keep in mind, we all sin, and we all sin regularly, right? And so, how do you grapple with this passage? Listen to the audio if you weren't here at all, because it's all in there. I don't want to re-preach that. But he does give some clarity in verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has, what, trampled underfoot the Son of God? That's an attack on the person of Christ, okay? So the types of sins are listed and manifested here. That tramples underfoot the Son of God, regards the blood of the covenant as a profane thing, and then finally insulted the Spirit of grace. And so those, that's the, the strong warning there. Well, our theme today is one of endurance. He, it's really two paragraphs here. In verses 32 and 36, he mentions the uh, endurance uh, to remember the past, to respond in the present, and to look forward to the future. It might be one way to think about that. The title of the message is, Endurance is the Antidote to Apostasy. If you are fearful that you might apostatize someday, this is the antidote, okay? So let us look at this. You should have received an outline uh, in your bulletin if you wanted to follow along because the verses are going to hit quickly, but you can always look them up later, circle them. You know, I hope this is helpful for you in your, your study of just applying the Word and, and not only just listening, but following along in that fashion So, our first point today, well, my purpose is that we would remember how God has worked in the past and that that would motivate endurance in the future, okay? Every sermon should have a purpose. Those of you who preach, you should write out your purpose, right? And uh, learned that from Jay Adams years ago. So, 
uh, that we, how he has worked in our lives in the past, should motivate us to uh, future endurance. So first of all, remember your endurance in the past. The, the word remember here is actually a command, right? <laughs> that whole warning section, is, there's no commands, but here's an imperative. Remember! Remember the former days. The memory is a powerful resource. I, you know, I, I think of times of trial that we go through. And those of us who have been in the Christian life 20, 30, 30 plus years, you look back at those past deliverances, those mighty answers to prayer, and that encourages our faith for what we're taking to the Lord, right? That burden that we have, and we see how God has worked. And so, we've seen the writer use historical examples. Remember the Moses generation in chapter 3? He belabors that quite a bit. We're about to, to see, next, beginning next week, to jump into this tour de France of biblical history in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. I mean, that's awesome. So he loves to use this history. And, and now he beckons them to remember the history of their own congregation, the times in the past. Remember the former days after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Remember that. And now, why would he want them to remember that? Remember, we've mentioned it several times. The book of Hebrews has these warnings because there's a temptation to go back to the synagogue, a temptation to, to forsake Christ. And he's seeking to motivate them to keep on, press on. You can't go back. It's not an option. Christ is enough. Rest in Him. Make no mistake about it, he's not recalling them their memory to only the good old days, right? But also, in particular, times of difficulty and danger. Those do stay riveted. Those, those mighty deliverance of the past, I mean, we remember those, that's great. But those difficulties where God brought you through are etched, I believe, a bit more deeper in our memory. Remember the early days, he says, when you'd received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest of suffering. And, you know, the, the uh, Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, which, by the way, he referenced up in verse 30, a different part of it. But even Moses, after those 40 years with that wilderness generation, he's about to go and die. People are entering the, the uh, promised land. But in Deuteronomy 32.7, he says, remember the days of old, right? So the, the writer perhaps has the Song of Moses in his mind, and, so, and he knows that, that, ver, that that's in there. And so he then says, I want these people to remember. Now, what is in the text here in the New American Standard? A great conflict of sufferings. What is that referring to? You ever thought about that? I mean, he, in verse 33 and 34 kind of elaborate on that, but, but what in particular? And, and I find this fascinating. Some historians believe about 15 years previous, we're about AD 64, 65 here, maybe just before Nero, but in AD 49 under the emperor Claudius, there was persecution to all the Jews actually in Rome. A famous quotation from one historian of the character of the Claudian persecution was this, there were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation of a Crestus. As a result, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And historians believe that Crestus is a reference to Christ and that the riots and expulsion occurred when the Jewish Christians were banished from the synagogue by the Jewish establishment. And so what does the emperor do? He's tired of all these riots. He's tired of the Jews and the Christians fighting in the synagogue. He says, away with all the Jews. And he sends them out of Rome. One of the reasons why I believe that these Hebrew Christians were likely in Rome. Remember we said it could be a house church, a small church in Jerusalem. It could be, there's indications that it, that it was Rome. And this is one indication. Remember in chapter 12, verse 4, what will he say? You have not yet resisted to the point of blood, right? And so, but we know that the, in Jerusalem, I mean, right out of the gate, right? Stephen's martyred. James has his head lopped off, right? But here, they, they, were, they were persecuted in what we're going to look at, right? Public spectacle, reproaches, tribulations. But he doesn't mention martyrdom here. And so, 
you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. This idea, the, the word endured means to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. It means to, to stand one's ground, as it were, right? It's got the military undertones to it in military context. It means to, to stand one's ground, to survive, to remain steadfast. And actually, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used in more of a sense of waiting and awaiting, in particular, the psalmist. And Psalm 25, we had a mini devotional this morning and prayer meeting, and, and, and part of that was waiting on the Lord. A couple chapters later, Psalm 27, verse 14, um, wait on the Lord. It's the same word that's used in chapter 12, when we were told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross. Romans 12.12, rejoicing in hope, persevering or enduring in tribulation. Now, this word conflict here, um, that was endurance, conflict. I think it helps us to get an understanding of this so we can move forward. It's, it's the Greek word athlesis, which is where we get the word athletic. So you think of an athletic context, a boxing match, a football game, you know, a, a, a full-on brawl or fight or something. That's the idea. It's a hard-fought athletic contest. And, and metaphors like that occur throughout Scripture. I was reminded of, of a, and, and it's, a, it's such a contest that the temptation would be to give up, but we must persevere and endure and keep forward. My brother used to race in those tough mutter races. Do you, do you know anybody? Does everybody know what that is? Nobody knows what it is. <laughs> that illustration just failed. <laughs> okay. So it's a 12-mile um, race with obstacles, intense obstacles. And the point is, is to get you to mentally break down before you get to the end. And it's just slimy mud. I mean, you're falling in mud at one point. You're walking off a what would be like a plank 15 feet into a huge mud puddle and all of that. Well, towards the end, it gets more and more intense, and that's why people don't finish the race. Um, the second to last thing is something that's called the Arctic Enema. It's a large construction dumpster, the long one, filled with ice water. And so you're plunged into that. You've got to swim under barriers under, in the water to stay in the water. But then the grand finality is the hardest mentally, and it's called electroshock therapy where you have to run in the mud, jump over hay bales. You, the finish line's in view, but there's all these shocks anywhere between, what did he say, 10 and 20,000 volts. It's like, he said, it's like getting zapped by a stun gun repeatedly, and you try to power through the last hurdles of mud before the finish line. Well, that's the idea here, right? It's uh, to endure, to don't cave in mentally, to press on. Don't, don't allow the, these afflictions to cause you to give up. And so that's the idea here of a great conflict of sufferings. This is how we must not shrink back. And even as they're encouraged to not shrink back, we must finish the contest. We must finish the competition. We'll see another athletic metaphor. I've already referenced it, but in uh, you know, Hebrews 12, right? Let us run with endurance the race set before us. And so he's going to keep picking up this theme. Well, let's consider now verses 33 and 34, a public spectacle through verbal and physical assaults. What these Christians experience are specifically mentioned, their personal suffering and their participation with others. This word, um, public spectacle, actually has the idea, it's the only time it occurs in the Greek New Testament, but it's the idea of a, a theater or an amphitheater, and it has the idea of uh, being exposed publicly and being put to shame, or to bring onto the stage and then to hold up in derision. That's the force of this word, and that's what he says. You guys, back then, remember back then, when you were derided, when you were persecuted, when you were so mistreated, when you were made a public spectacle in front of the Jews and the Romans and all of that. Now, should we be surprised by insults? 
I was watching part of our Planned Parenthood outreach on Facebook Live, and I heard the guy that was just hammering the horn there, and you hear the other insults, and and all manner of insults. Should we be surprised as Christians when people insult us? No, we shouldn't be surprised. Or are we more elevated than Christ and the psalmist and uh, Noah? I mean, think of Noah. He's building that ark for all that time. You can just picture the neighbors taunting him. What are you doing? You know, and, and the psalmist, Psalm 69, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. Remember that uh, Christ being crucified with the two robbers on the either side. They're hurling what? Insults to Christ. So, verbal persecution, that's bad, but I mean, we'll get through it. But then the tribulation has the idea of physical cruelty or mob violence associated with beatings. And few of us have that. It's more common in India. It can happen here. More the exception than the rule. And look in verse 34, he says, And you showed compassion or sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property while suffering their own trials and afflictions, at other times they align themselves with those who were being treated in that way. Actually, when he says here in verse, the prisoners, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession, I'm sorry, up in verse 33, by becoming part sharers with those who were so treated. That's the word koinonia. It's to align yourself with, right? It has the idea of participation. Paul uses it in to the church at Philippi, where he says, it is only right for me to feel this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. And so he uses that word, that when we're not having the insults and the physical persecution, we partner with those that are going through it, right? We show sympathy and compassion, and we meet real needs. Now, you know, I know it's hard to imagine what a first century prison cell would be like because today, what are they like? You've got um, big screen TVs, padded chairs, workout rooms, a yard that you can go out into. You're served three meals a day, right? That's the modern uh, prison. But get that out of, your idea, out of your mind here when he talks about the prisoners, even the medieval time, we were able to tour the Tower of London a few years back. And I'll tell you, I mean, torture devices? It looked pretty grim in there. Well, in the first century, there was nothing. You were put in a dungeon. There was no way a prisoner would survive apart from friends and family bringing food, bringing blankets, bringing water. And so you see Paul actually thanking people for doing that. And even um, the, one of the reasons, motives for the uh, letter to the Philippians is that very thing, to thank that church for their participation in sending Epaphroditus with those gifts. Jesus even alludes to this in the parable of the sheep and the goats where he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. When, Lord, as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. The writer will encourage us to remember the prisoners in chapter 13 and verse 3 as well. Uh, Again, to show compassion and to remember those who are in prison. Well, a couple of just practical applications before we move on. This should actually remind us, don't, do we have a call to, to participate with those that are in prison, believers that are suffering and persecuted uh, countries that are in prison, that are even being tortured? How they should be a part of our prayers regularly, brethren. How we should be interceding on their behalf. We can't go and take food or you know, necessarily in a lot of those situations, but what is the one thing we can do? Pray. For them to the throne of grace. They need our prayers. Brethren, do not be drunk with your own personal prosperity here in the U.S. You know, you've got the comfortable car, the comfortable bed, the heater, air conditioning. That's another thing those prisons didn't have that today they do. Uh, 
you know, heat and air is nice, right? But, uh, you know, to not be so blinded by our prosperity that we lose sight of those who are less fortunate and those who are suffering. I already had it in my notes, but uh, a Canadian pastor is sitting in prison right now for refusing to stop meeting and preaching the gospel. James Coates, uh, about three of my friends, actually went to seminary with him. He's actually a good Reformed guy. Um, It's not some whack job, like sometimes, uh, but he's a good guy. But he refuses to stop preaching and meeting. And so there he is in a maximum security prison. Uh, Aaron shared that they even shackled his, his ankles when he turned himself in. That's being mistreated, right? Let's remember him in prison. His wife, Erin, has done several interviews if you're interested in just hearing a little bit more about that situation. The Apostle Paul says this, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, for the gospel, nor for me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We must also remember to speak truth. Read this week of a man uh, in college in uh, New York, New York University. He was kicked out for posting a little video that said it's really easy to discern what gender you are. Use biology, <laughs> and you'll you'll see it. And so, he said, if if you're a woman and you feel like a man, just acknowledge that it's a feeling, but you're not actually a man. And so he's kicked out, and uh, you know you can't even say things like that these days. Well, what's this, the seizure? of your property. I admit, brethren, I have a, a library that I love, um, you know, collectibles and all of that. To lose that would be hard. It would really be hard. To have our house burned down or to have a persecutors come in and just take everything so that we're starting over would be difficult. And, and, and that's what happened here. Loss of possessions, most likely, I think, in that first century context, would be from vandalism, senseless destruction, um, mob violence, most certainly, and even the discrimination against those businesses, you know, business equipment being destroyed because you're marked out as a Christian. Rome doesn't, the Romans don't like you, the the Jews uh, don't like you, and so they treat you with contempt. Remember in the last few last, I don't know, five years or whatever, the baker that refused, there was two of them in Oregon and Colorado, refused to make a cake for a a gay wedding. Lawsuits, hundreds of thousands of dollars of fine, loss of business. That's persecution when you stand up for something like that. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs says this, with a Christian can walk, a Christian can walk in the midst of fiery trials without his garments being sensed singed and has comfort and joy in the midst of everything, it will convince men that they see the power and grace of God amidst afflictions. In other words, how we respond to these things affects others, right? People that are watching us, right? They're watching us. But notice what it says here is that you you accepted joyfully you know, let's say the errand home gets ransacked and Jennifer and I are doing cartwheels. Yay! Yay! No! But joyfully, joyfully they accepted this. Why? Because there's a better and a lasting possession. There's actually a play on words in the original because it's the same root where it says your property within a better possession. And isn't that what we see with the Apostles, Acts 5.41? Um, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see, in place of that plundered property that, that, that Christians may lose, there is a treasure in heaven that cannot be taken from us. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust or moth destroy, where thieves cannot break into and steal. F.F. Bruce Bruce summarizes it like this. The eternal inheritance laid up for them was so real in their eyes that they could lightheartedly bid farewell to their material possessions, which were short-lived and in that case. So that's our first and longest point. Don't fear. Fear not. (laughs) 
So let's move on. Our second point is don't throw away your confidence. Verse 35 says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You see, confidently enduring, looking to the promised reward is what he's appealing here. He's saying, he's appealing that after you've been so courageous, now don't throw away that boldness. Keep pressing on that confidence that we have. And it's not a self-confidence. It's a trusting and a resting in Christ alone. It's not confidence in the postmodern sense, you know, where you doubt everything. It's, it's full conviction of the gospel. And he says, don't throw it away. It's used figuratively here, of course. And the only other time that word occurs is when um, uh, the man threw off his cloak. But here it's a very strong negative. It's emphatic. It's actually at the very beginning of the sentence. Do not throw away your confidence. Now, we've already seen confidence. Look back just a few verses in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we were told back in chapter 4.16 to come to the throne of grace with confidence, right? Same word here. Don't throw it away. We have this possession of confidence. So we might think of it here as a call, to put it positively, to steadfastness in the midst of adverse and disheartening situations. Having come this far, do not turn back, even as the Israelites were tempted to do at one point. The enemy cannot defeat you in open battle, but you know what our enemy of our souls hopes to do? Wear us down, weaken us, right? Uh, that's, that's what he hopes. And brothers and sisters, don't, don't miss the force of this purse, powerful admonition to throw away boldness is to cast off the most precious gift that you have in Christ. If you're close with Christ and you know that He's died for you, your confidence is encouraged and emboldened and you have a greater boldness before the Lord And the powerful motive, of course, is listed here because he says there at the end of it, right, which has a great reward. So what we need is boldness. We need the boldness of the English reformer Hugh Latimer. Anybody heard that name, right? Hugh Latimer. This is during the days of Henry VIII. And back in those days, the kings would have preachers come and to preach sermons uh, to them. And so on one occasion, Hugh Latimer uh, had just preached a sermon And message got to him that he offended King Henry VIII. And so Latimer was commanded to come back the following weekend and make an apology to the king. Well, as he came back, this is how he began that next week, right? He says this, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know who before whom thou art to this day about to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, monarch, the king, most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if you offendeth him, and before the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholds all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. Then Latimer gave the exact same message as the previous week but only with more passion and boldness before the king. you got to love that. That's what we need. We need to be emboldened. Well, what is this great reward? We're going to see in a couple of weeks in in chapter 11 and verse 6, it says here, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. This is the the idea here is that it's a mega reward. Now, there's been a lot of bad teaching about rewards, right? It's like if, you, if you're a good Christian, you'll get a better reward, or you'll have maybe more jewels or something like that in your crown. Is it, am I the only one that's heard that? I mean, there's some bad teaching out there. When you see this reward, don't think merit. Like, I'm getting paid back something. I did this, God's giving me that. Away with such nonsense. You, this is not something you earn. It's something that Christ has gained for you and will give you in that last day. We need to remember the already and the not yet, right? This eschatological 
idea here that in a sense, like there's different nuances, right? Have you been saved? If you're a believer, yes. When did that occur? In the past, at some point, for some, a year ago, for some, 35 years ago, uh, right? And then, are you being saved today? Yes, that's the present. And then, will you yet be saved in the future? Yes, right? Full deliverance, delivered, glorified, no more sin. And so that's the idea, is that that's the already, we're saved, we're being saved, and we will yet be saved. The already and the not yet. And um, you could think of it uh, perhaps as past, present, and future. You could think of it as justification in the past, sanctification this whole life, and then glorification. So this reward is nothing less than inheriting the full salvation and being in the presence of the Lord and being free from sin forever. So first, remember. Second, don't throw it away. That confidence, hold on to it. Now endure by looking to the future in faith. Look what he says in verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. Who will receive these promises? It's those who rest in Christ and those who do His will. He goes from the negative in verse 35 to now encouraging them positively. You have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. And, and, and he says here that and you will receive what is promised. And what is that? All, all the new covenant promises, right? That he puts his law on our, on our hearts and in our minds. He forgives our sins and remembers them no more. All those new covenant benefits that we spent so much time looking at. Now why do you think he throws in here when you've done the will of God? Now, sometimes it's, it's hard to lose. Like back at the beginning of chapter 10 was probably, what, six weeks ago? So it's probably not fresh in your mind. But look at verse 7 and 9. Just earlier in the chapter, remember he's quoting um, the psalm here. And he says, uh, Psalm 40, says, Then I said, Behold, I've come, and the scroll of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. And he said in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. So I think that's fresh in the writer's mind, and so he's, he's encouraging them under the same thing. The fact that Christ did His Father's will is the very motivation that you need to press on. You have need of endurance to do God's will, to bring glory to Him. Christ has secured it all for you. Do it. 1 John 2.17 This world is passing away and also is lust, but the one who what does the will of God lives forever. Again, he's not saying that the only way you're going to receive what is promised is if you endure, but it's an expression of confidence that God will indeed keep all his promises. Even at the end of chapter 30, or at the end of chapter 11 in verse 39, it says, In all of these, the whole hall of faith, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That promise is yet future, the future inheritance of that like jesus who endured in spite of hateful opposition so too our endurance uh, the need for our endurance implies that it's not always easy to be a christian in this life right it it, oftentimes it's not Uh, you look at some of the stuff that's coming down the pike even in our own country and it's going to become more difficult to be a christian that has some backbone of conviction a backbone of conviction that no, I'm not going to allow culture to define what my beliefs are, but the Word of God which abides forever has to shape our minds and our convictions. It's not going to be easy. Success in the Christian life requires patience and suffering, but it's filled with so much discouragement along the way. But then there's also that encouragement. We can't give up. There's nowhere else to go. To whom will we go? Peter said, right? You alone have the words of eternal life. 1 John 2.28 Now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, He may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming if you know that He is righteous 
you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So knowing your, your future can affect the present. Knowing that there's future inheriting of promises can motivate me to enduring today and tomorrow and the next day. You see how that works. Persevering and confident hope requires mental effort. We need to have our minds shaped by the Word of God. The, the, a Christian can't just be influenced moment by moment by little circumstances, but to have the big picture, right? As we live this life. Verse 37 and 38, we're called to live by faith as we wait the coming one. Uh, notice what it says, for yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. The writer driving home his point now by quoting two Old Testament prophets. That little phrase, for yet in a little while, most think comes from Isaiah 26.20. So that little phrase right there, and he, he puts that with the Habakkuk 2.3b and verse 4 there to motivate us. <clears throat> and a little while points to the shortness of time that, that He is coming, right? We're to have that eschatological hope. Now, we have to remember the context of Habakkuk is the prophets crying out because of the injustice and the wickedness of of his own people, but now the Babylonians are coming in and their wickedness coming to conquer. God's answer is on the way. He's not tarrying. The coming one is coming. as It's a reference to Christ. And in, in his quotation, he puts an article in front of it to make it very clear that he's pointing that he's speaking of Christ. The first phrase in verse 38 is set in direct contrast to the second. But my righteous one shall live by faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So those are it's a vivid contrast that he's painting there. We need to remember that he had just warned previously about leaving the faith and apostasy and recalling the judgment of God. And so don't shrink back. Don't turn back. I love it when Paul says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says it twice there in Acts chapter 20. Now Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and it's quoted here, but in those contexts it points to justification by faith, right? But true faith is for a lifetime. And that's what the writer is saying here. The endurance and in that faith And so, the writer to the Hebrews, this is what they had to do. He's he's saying, Jesus isn't here yet, but keep pressing on. And as you see the spread of wickedness in our day, it can be very discouraging. Just this week, I was praying, what was it, Friday or something, and on my knees, and just uh, my my wife walked in and sat down, and, and I just said, there's so much that's happened this week that is so discouraging. This Equality Act. I'm going to forget half of them, but I named off about five things, which is going to, if that passes the Senate, it will affect, it will mean the loss of religious liberty. How about the top Biden health official being questioned by a senator that, do you think it's right for a minor to not share with their parents, but be able to have a transgender operation, sex change operation, without the parents knowing. And obviously, that is the firm belief of this particular person. Uh, That was very, very clear. So, they're going to be running to health? A proposed bill immediately after the Equality Act. Uh, (laughs) Some assembly people here in the state of, good old state of California, immediately seeking to shove through a bill any retailer that has a separate boys' clothing section and a separate girls' clothing section will be fine, $1,200 a day. Can you see this? What, can you see what they're doing? This wickedness. It's just dreadful. And now, Mr. Potato Head's dragged into this thing. He's been emasculated. I mean, can you believe that? I, I just I cannot believe it. I really can't. I mean, the only good thing that could come out of that is they redo Toy Story or something, and it's better than before, I don't know. But uh, I, it's just, it's, it's folly. And furthermore, the tyranny that continues. I forwarded that email from Mike Amati, one of the RBNet missionaries in Ireland. They've been on lockdown for a year. 
a year. They haven't been able to meet as a church. $1,200 fine, $1, euro fines, which is more than $1,200, if you're caught breaking the, the, the uh, curfew hours. And not only that, but Europe and Canada. Canada now requires a mandatory, uh, the same thing that England had, a mandatory quarantine when you fly back into your home country. Welcome home. Go stay, sit in a hotel, take a test, and, and all of that. It's just... But we can be reminded that God is on the throne. Look at our young people, these schools being closed. Come on, we're on a year now. Do you realize what the mental health of the average child that's not being brought up in a Christian home has been severely affected? The suicide rates at an all-time high among these age groups. It's perplexing. We can ask, why, Lord? Well, we must live in faith, looking for that coming one, the one who is coming, yet in a little while. Come on, Pastor Kirk, just, just bear through it in a little while and endure and know that he who is coming will come without delay. And that, that time may be a little closer than what any of us thought with some of the stuff that's going on in our world. We need to be ready to meet the Lord. He's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see Him, the Scriptures say. Actually, in Revelation 6 and verse 15, it says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. You know who fits in that group? Human wicked governments. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So we need to remind ourselves, those people that reject God, that shove the wicked agenda, seek to shove it down our throats, this will be their predicament someday. Well, we have great expectation of the future. Look what the writer does. Last verse as we wrap up. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. It's, it's beautiful. It's a, a, and actually, this is a, another summary statement. He does such a good job on these summary statements. Um, at the end of 10.18, which concluded three chapters, it says, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. No more bulls, no more goats. Christ is enough, right? It's another summary statement. He's emphatic. He includes himself with the, the, um, with the uh, hearers, the writer does. Notice in verse 38, it's, uh, it's um, faith, the righteous one will live by faith, but if he shrinks back, and then he flip-flops that in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back, but those who are of the faith. So, a lack of steadfastness uh, will lead to the potential of shrinking back. But look at that. To the preserving of the soul. I think of 1 Peter where he says um, that, uh, that the, the people of God who are protected by the power of God through faith Faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And what does He say? Everyone who has this hope, what? Purifies himself even as Christ is pure couple points of application. The true Christian is assured victory, brethren. Be encouraged. Remember the former days. Uh, you have need of in, 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 uh, endurance. We are assured victory because Jesus Christ was victorious on the cross. He's victorious in the tomb. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's risen from the dead. The victory's already been won in Christ. And we need to remember that victory does not mean that we will not have difficulties and trials. Don't be so shocked when it comes. It's going to come. There's going to be insults. There's going to be tribulation. Don't be shocked. Be steadfast in that conflict, right? That's what we need to do. It doesn't mean we're never going to face opposition. But victory has been obtained through many toils and snares. 
Victory will motivate Christian love. An outpouring of love to the um, persecuted church, to even our enemies and to our neighbors as ourselves. Romans chapter 8, I just want to read this for us. The end of the chapter there. But in all these things, we, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, or depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faith in the past to a true and a lasting joy. Piper says everyone wants the best and longest happiness possible. Well, here it is. Psalm 16 and verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forever. You see, having this God is better than wealth, money. It's better than sex. Sex is wonderful, but but how much more to be in the presence of God? Even that imagery that we're His bride and He's the bridegroom? Oh, it's beautiful. It's better than popularity. Having this God. Well, Jesus, we began the service. Come unto me, all you who labor. We end the sermon with that same thing. Everything the world has to offer, God is better and more abiding than this. God wins every time. The question is, is will you have Him, my unconverted friend? You have to confess your sins. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to repent and turn from those sins and run to Christ and throw yourself on His mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for uh, this time that we could look into this passage that encourages us. Lord, may we take these things to heart. May we even contemplate them on this, your day, the Lord's day, later this afternoon, and talk of them with our spouses, our children, our friends, our brothers, our sisters. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.